So this is where we're at right now as a church when it comes to this sermon series. We're doing a sermon series focusing in on our mission statement. We like to say that we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it. And currently in this sermon series, we're picking apart that mission statement piece by piece, examining it, investigating it, rooting ourselves in Scripture so that we can figure out what it looks like for us to live it out as a church and as, as individuals. Uh, we started this just a few weeks ago, but looking at what does it mean to be a Christ-centered family? And we saw that to be a Christ-centered family means that we are united by faith with Jesus Christ, adopted into the family of God, so that we are brothers and sisters with one another and we can relate to God not as some detached deity, but as our Father, a Father who loves us, whose love we then share with one another. Brothers and sisters. Probably could have said that better. Second week, we looked at what it means that we glorify God. And what that means is that in everything we do, no matter what it is, we want God to be made great. We want him to look good. Um, Father, we, or we want to lift him up and honor him, glorify him, no matter what we do as a church family. Then last week, we took a week, a little hiatus there in the middle to look at what I was describing as God's Mexican food. Three ingredients that God uses to grow us as disciples, scripture, prayer, and the gathered fellowship of the church. These are the ingredients that we're going to hear a lot about over the next three weeks, including today, which is going to be our first week in answering the question, how do we do it by loving God? What does it mean to love God? That's where we're going to be today. What does it mean for us to love God? You might have said that you love God. You might have uh, you might hear other people say that they love God. And actually, when you, when you hear those words, you might think, hey, that's a pretty easy thing to describe. Except when you try to define it, you realize that describing what it means to love God is a little bit like trying to describe what beauty is. We know what beauty is. We can tell you when we see it, but we can't really put a definition to it. At least that's what it's like for me. I'm sorry, there's a lot of glare on my glasses. I'm going to put those up. It's hard to describe what beauty is. It's hard to understand what it means to love God. But in the same way, we can understand it. It's not as complicated as it might seem at first. It's hard to define, but it's not hard to understand. Because loving God is a lot like loving anything else. The Bible tells us a lot about love. Here's a little bit about what the Bible tells us about love. John 15, 13 says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. All right, 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All these passages that talk about genuine love, biblical love, show us something. That love is marked by genuine self-sacrifice. By caring for the other more than you care for yourself. Being willing to lay down your wants, lay down your desires in order to meet their wants, their desires. That's what love looks like. And so when we take that idea and we apply it to love of God, what does that teach us? It teaches us that to love God looks like, practically, giving up our wants, laying down our lives, taking up our cross. It looks like faith. It looks like obedience. It looks like surrendering all of our allegiance before him, before his throne. 
making him our king and the highest authority. We see that in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Obedience. That's the outflow of love for God. 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brothers. <laughs> it's an important thing for us to wrestle with. What does it mean to love God? And all the more when we read a couple passages from the Bible, one in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and another in Matthew 22. Deuteronomy 6, this is what Moses says. He says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God gave that law to Moses as the first law of the entire Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy. That's the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your might. And when we come to the New Testament, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he answers like this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and, uh, sorry, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. More on that next week. In these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying not only is this law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Not only is it the first commandment, it is the greatest commandment. Not only that, but it's the foundation, one of the two foundation stones upon which the entire Old Testament is built, the Law and the Prophets. It's important. It's important for us today, and that's the reason why it is right in the middle of our mission statement. So what we've learned already is not only that answering this question of what it means to love God, not only is it important, but it's something that is more than a feeling. It's more than... Uh, an emotion. It's a verb. It's something we do. But the thing I want to think about today with you guys is that loving God is not less than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It's not less than a feeling. When we think about what it looks like for us to love God, it includes a delight in him, a savoring of him, finding happiness in him, treasuring him, desiring him, hungering for him, enjoying him, treasuring him. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. And I understand that all of us might have different levels of, of emotion. Some of us are more emotional than others. Some of us have a smaller emotional capacity. Some have others, or a larger, others have larger <laughs> emotional capacity. But what we see from the word of God is that though love of God does include action, self-sacrifice, and service, it's rooted in our affection for Him. Our affection for God overflows in action for God. I don't know if you're a note-taker. If you are, that's one thing you might want to write down. Our affection for God overflows in our actions for God. This is what Jonathan Edwards wrote. Uh, he was one of the greatest minds in American history. This, this is what he says. It is evident that religion consists so much in affection that without holy affection, there is no true religion. 
His point is, if your love for God does not reach your heart, it's not a true love for God. It's not true faith. It's rooted in our affection, but it overflows in our actions. And actually, this is intuitive for us. Just think about romantic love. Very few of us uh, uh, tangibly love somebody or practically love somebody, love somebody with our actions before we ever have any affection for them. We grow in our affection for someone before we ever show our love for them in action. That's because actions are the overflow of our affections. We see the same thing in friends and family. The more affection we have for someone, the more natural it is for us to sacrificially love them and to serve them. Actions are the overflow of our, of our affections. And so it is for God. With him, our, our lives for God, our, our actions for God, are the overflow of our affections for God. And so today, rather than focusing on the actions by which we love God, we are going to be focusing on the affection for God. How do we, as a church, love God with our hearts, with our affections? How do we nurture and grow greater <laughs> affection for the God of the universe. That's where we're going to be focusing today. And the best place to turn for that, as I said a moment ago, is the Psalms. These Old Testament poems written by uh, the fathers of our faith. And today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 63. Psalm chapter 63, just the first four verses. So join me there. Follow along, if you will, especially since we don't have, don't have slides this morning. But as you listen to me read this psalm, I think you'll realize it sounds a little bit like a love poem to God. This is a poem written by a man who was after God's own heart, a man named David. This is what he says about God, starting in 63 verse 1 and reading through verse 4. This is what he says. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That passage, it, it's not just a passage that you need to understand. It's a passage you need to feel. You can feel that passage. You can feel the weight of his desire to know his God in this passage. It's incredibly personal. It's emotional. He is the man of God longing to be satisfied in God. So let's pick it apart for a moment. Read it and feel it. Starting in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you're going to boil down verse 1 into just one word, get at the main theme or idea, uh, I think I might choose the word longing, right? Or, or desperation. David is desperate <laughs> for God here, and he paints this vivid picture. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. His soul is desperate for God like a man in the wilderness, in the desert, is desperate for something to drink. It pains him not to have it. His life depends on finding it. It gives you a picture of the desperation. And it's a vivid picture, all the more so when you recognize, where is David when he wrote this? This is, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. You know, if we were going to be together, um, I had a slide that gave you a picture of the wilderness of Judah. You can go ahead and Google it if you want after after the service today. Um, but the wilderness of Judah was a barren desert where there was no water. It's possible that as he was writing this poem, he was being inspired by his own circumstances, feeling the true uh, thirst uh, and longing for water that comes and you can't find it. And so that's the first thing we see in verse 1. David longs for God as a man in the desert longs for water. His life depends on it. It pains him not to have it. Verse 2. Join me there. So therefore, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David longs for God. And so he does what anybody longing for anybody will do. He looks for God. (laughs) He looks to find relief for his longing. Relief for his desperate desire. He thirsts for God, so he turns to God to relieve that thirst. Look upon him, beholding his glory and his power. If we have to, therefore, take verses 1 and 2 and just ask ourselves, what is David doing in these first two verses? of the psalm. What's the answer to that question? David longs for God, and then David looks for God. In other words, if we're going to boil it down, this is what we can say. David, in these first two verses, he is earnestly seeking God. Earnestly seeking God. That's what we see in these first two verses. Let's turn them to the next two. Verses three and four. What's the result? He longs for God. He looks for God. What's next? Verse three. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. (laughs) He thirsts and he longs for the Lord. So he looks to the Lord. He finds the the desire of his heart. He finds a love that is better than life. And what we see in this passage is he responds to what he finds in worship. He longs for God. He finds God, and so he praises God with his lips. He blesses God. He lifts up his hands to God. It's only logical. When you find something that is good, something that is delightful, something is wonderful, you want to shout about how wonderful that thing is. When you find something uh, like beautiful, uh, sometimes you can't help but even uh, verbally speak of its beauty, speak of its goodness. I, I think about... Um, I think I've probably mentioned this before. Walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon in Arizona, looking out over it and saying out loud from my mouth, wow, right? It's, I didn't think to myself and choose, I need to say wow about the Grand Canyon. It's the natural thing that happened. I saw something absolutely unbelievable and I couldn't stop myself from bubbling over in awe. Wow. <laughs> beautiful is i think the same thing happens when we um when we're watching a a a game a football game 
and our team scores a touchdown, a basketball game, and our, our team scores a last-minute point. We can't help it. We jump to our feet. It's the natural thing we do. We saw something wonderful. We want to celebrate it. It just pours out of us. This is true of God as well. At least it's true of David here. And if it's true of the creation, how much more true of the creator, right? Worship is the natural response to who God is. Worship is the natural response to who God actually is. So let's bring all this together. Just verses one through four of Psalm, uh, of this Psalm. What do we see? Let's bring it together and tie it up with a bow. What we see in verse 1 and 2 is that David is seeking after God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Longing and looking, seeking for God. In verses 3 and 4, what's he doing? He's savoring God. Worshiping God. Responding in the natural way to the God that he has found. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you. I will lift up my hands to you. David is seeking, and he is savoring. He's seeking God, and then he's savoring God. He's seeking God, longing for him, and looking for him. And then when he finds him doing the natural thing, savoring the good God he finds. I'm convinced that what we see David do here is actually the normal pattern of how God's people grow in their affection enjoyment and delight of God through a regular natural rhythm of seeking and savoring, fixing our eyes on him and rejoicing what we see, looking to him and treasuring him. And so for the rest of our time together, when we think about what it looks like for us to love God, we're going to be focusing on these two ideas. What does it look like for us to seek God? Why seek him? And then also, what does it look like for us to savor God, to delight in him? That's where we're going for the rest of our time together. So first, seeking. What does it look like for us to seek God? Well, I want you to think about somebody who's uh, uh, dating online. Somebody who's uh, maybe you or someone else um, who you're on eHarmony, Match.com or something like this. And you get matched with somebody who's, who's a really... Um, really perfect match like numerically the algorithm says that this is your soulmate okay and so um you you don't know a lot about them you get a blurry picture you get a little information but you fall madly in love with this person Let, let's imagine it's a friend of yours um they fall madly in love with this person knowing almost nothing about them and they come to you telling you just how wonderful this person is how their hearts are absolutely bubbling over uh in love and affection uh for this person you would try to calm them down a little bit, right? Because love for somebody that you don't even know that well is completely illogical. Why is that though? Well, it's because of something that we all essentially understand. You can't love someone you don't know. That's the key. You can't actually love someone you don't know. You can have attraction to somebody you don't know, but you can't have affection for someone you don't know. You can lust after somebody you don't know, but you cannot love somebody you don't know. Rather, what your friend would do in, the, in that dating situation is that she or he would begin to correspond with that person, right? 
she would begin to maybe go out on, on dates with that person, hear more about their life, ask about their life, share about their own lives, and then share some experiences together. <laughs> and if you like what you're seeing, you're going to continue to do that. And as you do, you're going to start to grow some seeds of affection for this person. Because you can't love someone you don't know. And this is true at the beginning of the relationship, and it's also true throughout a relationship. If a person is good in your eyes, you will want to seek to continue to know them better. It's the natural response to good things. You're going to want more of that good thing. You're going to want to uncover new untapped riches of the goodness that is in them. But you cannot love someone you do not know. And that's true of God as well. You cannot love God you do not know. It's true at the beginning of your relationship with him, and it's true throughout your, your relationship with him. There's a, a girl that I studied with both at Moody and at Gordon-Conwell, and I don't know her all that well, but just recently she put out a book that um, has been getting a lot of attention. And uh, I haven't read it yet, so I don't want to, I can't fully recommend it to you yet, uh, but it's called Fix Your Eyes. Uh, and her name is Amy Gannett. Haven't read it yet, but um, I have read the cover and front and back. And just on the front and the back of these books, of this book, it really helps give a little bit of a clearer picture of what I'm getting at here. Let me just read the subtitle to you. Fix Your Eyes, How Your Study of God Shapes Our Worship of God. How Our Study of God Shapes Our Worship of Him. It unpacks it a little bit more in the back. This is what she writes. When we study the nature and the character of God as revealed in his word, we are invited to respond in the affectionate, obedient discipleship of worship. <laughs> worship should always be rooted in theology. That's exactly what we're getting at here. That's exactly what I'm trying to, to unpack here. Because what's her point? Her point is you can't love a God that you do not know. You cannot savor a God that you do not seek. The first step to actually savoring God, actually worshiping God, is to seek to know God better. And the word that she uses here is theology, right? Theology is a scary word, but at its core, all theology is, is a human pursuit to know God. How could that be dry and dusty? If our God is dry and dusty, then it would be. But since our God is good and sweet and delightful, the pursuit to know him better will be a pursuit that is sweet. So you can use whatever words you want. <laughs> but if you want to savor God, the first step is to seek him, to know him. And be free. That's why at our church, what we want to do is prioritize the study of God's word, to know him through his word. The Bible tells us that we can know things about God through what we might call general revelation, things like nature, right? Romans 1 tells us this, Psalm 8 tells us this. But the truth is, if you want to know specifics about who our God is, you have to go to special revelation. You have to turn to his word. This is God's word, the word through which he reveals himself. And so for us as a church, it's important that we read this word, that we know this word, that we believe truly that it is inspired from God, given to us by him, 
that on Sunday mornings when it's time for us to gather for worship, I preach that word, not my own thoughts. That when we come together for home groups, we study this book or books that teach this truth. That on our own time, when we're seeking the Lord on our own, we come to this because this is where we meet him, who he really is. This is where we seek God. And so if we want to seek to know God, sorry, if we want to love God, the first step is to seek him on our own together through his word. Seek God. The second step, savor God. First seek, then savor. Let's go back to that online dating illustration from a moment ago. They matched, and so uh, they sought to know one another better. Why? (laughs) Because when we grow in knowledge of somebody, we begin to see whether or not they are good in our eyes, right? That's that's what we're doing on a date. It's almost like a high-stakes job interview. Um, Do I like them? Do I want to spend more time with them? It's a process of discerning. Are they are they good? to me? Are they, uh, are, they, are they the kind of person that I'm looking for to spend my life with? And you must do this when you're spending a, seeking a person to spend your life with. And as you peel back the layers of people, you know what you're going to find. As you peel back the layers of people, you will find a mix of good and bad. Nobody's perfect and nobody's altogether terrible. We are a mix of good and bad qualities. And so, um, we, we peeled back those layers and try to discern, is this the person that I want to spend my life with? Is this the person that God has for me? And here's, here's the difference between knowing and loving people and knowing and loving God. As you peel back the layers of people and find a mix of good and evil... The more you see, I should say, the the more good that you find, the more your affection for that person will grow, right? But that is not the way that it was going to work with God. Because as you peel back the layers of God, you will not find a mix of good and evil. You're going to find a God who is perfectly good. A God who has an absolute absence of evil and wickedness. A God who perfectly loves you. A God who has perfectly loved you. In a date, you might or might not be disappointed, but with God, as you seek him, you will never be disappointed because he is perfectly good, perfectly righteous. The purpose of seeking God is to savor God, to learn with your head that he is infinite, free from limitations, so that you can say with your heart, wow, right? To learn with your head that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere, always, so that you can say with your heart, wow. To learn with your head that he is omniscient, that he is complete, perfect understanding of everything so that you can say in your heart, wow, that he is omnisapient, that means perfect in wisdom, that he always knows what's best, that he is good, perfectly perfect, always doing what's best, omnipresent, limitless in power, always able to do what's best so that you can say, wow, you can learn that he is merciful, kind to people in trouble so that your heart can say, Wow, gracious, good to those who don't deserve it so that your heart can say, wow. And we could go on and on like this until we name everything that there is to say about God. But the truth is we will never get to the bottom of the goodness and the riches of who 
God is. Even now, we're just barely scratching the surface of what makes our God, God. And that's okay. Because the purpose of seeking God is not to get our hands around exactly who he is. But the purpose of seeking is to savor, to grow a more perfect understanding of who this God is. So that we can say, wow, he is better than I thought. He is sweeter than I thought. He is more delightful than I thought. As we think back to the psalm that we started with, Psalm 63, 1 through 4, David says, earnestly I seek you. But it seems like he's not seeking God just to fill his head with who God is, right? What's clear here is that he is seeking God to satisfy his heart with who God is. To behold his power and glory. To know a love that is better than life. To praise him with his lips. To bless him and lift up his hands to him. The purpose for David of seeking God is so that he can savor him and know the joy of knowing him. Seeking and savoring. Because seeking him, knowing him, without savoring him, worship him, it's, it's stale. It's dry and dusty. It's academic. It's pointless. But to savor God without seeking him is silly. You don't even know who the God is that you're praising. And it's dangerous. <laughs> you could be, you could be uh, worshiping a completely made-up God. We must seek and savor God if we are going to love him correctly. And actually, this is all over David's writings. Just a few days ago, my friend was sharing this verse with me, and I realized this is exactly what we're talking about on Sunday. Psalm 70, verse 4. Let me read this. David writes this. May all who seek you, seek. Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> seek, savor. He goes on, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. <laughs> Seek, savor. Psalm 27, 1 through 4, David says the exact same thing. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. There is only one thing that David wants from God. Only one thing. What is it? To seek after God so that he can gaze upon his beauty. Seek. Savor. Do you seek God? Seek him in order to savor him. Not to fill your head only, but to satisfy your heart. The longings of your heart. I promise you that as you seek this God, you will find that he is better than you think he is more delightful than you think he is. Seek God in order to savor him. Be free. Let's do that. Not as an end in itself, but as a means of our worship, of our praise, filling our heads to satisfy our hearts. Now, one more time, let's come back to this online dating illustration. Your friend matches with somebody, they go out, uh, on a date, and let's say they have a wonderful time. Uh, it's just, uh, this is the person that your friend has been looking for their, <laughs> their entire lives. Uh, they go out, uh, they, you know, they realize that they're not murderers or, or uh, crazy people. And 
as they come back from that date, the seeds of affection are planted in their hearts. Do you, do you know what I mean? They're not, they're not wildly in love, but they think, I, I like this person. I wanna, I'm, th- I'm thankful uh, that I was matched with this person. But let's then imagine that the other person uh, reaches out to your friend and says, hey, I, I had a great time with you. Let's go out again. Let's go out and spend more time together. Let's get to know one another more. Let's enjoy being together more. And your friend responds to this person. No, I had a great time too. In fact, I really like you. I think you're really special. In fact, I think that you're exactly the kind of person that I've been looking for. But I think that's enough for me. What if they said to them, I had a great time too, but I don't want to go out again. I'm just going to hold on to this sweet memory of a fun evening. And that's enough. I'm happy with that. That wouldn't happen. I understand that there's there's other reasons that people might call off a date than just not liking them. But generally speaking, when the seeds of affection are planted in somebody dating, they're going to continue to seek that person. They're going to continue to want to know that person. They're going to want to know more about them to continue to, 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 to find more joy in that person. And with God, the more we seek him, the more we find to savor. And the more we find the savor to savor, the more that we're going to want to seek him. Not only does seeking lead to savoring, in other words, but savoring leads to more seeking. It's only natural. When we find joy in him, when we delight with him, we're going to want to go back to the buffet to get some more. You cannot taste that he is sweet and not want more of him. It's not a straight line. It's a cycle. So be free. Let's love our God together by seeking after him. Seeking to know him more. Seeking to wrap our minds around who he actually is so that we together can savor him can worship him, can delight in the God that we find. Let's sink our teeth into the sweetness of scripture so that we can lift our hands in praise and song. Let's grow in our affection for God, seeking and savoring, loving and worshiping, and then letting our deepening, deepening, deepening affection for God overflow in actions of love. This is the God we serve. And this is how we as a church will seek to love God.